what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And there's quite a few people who I didn't know that'd been there for quite some time. And they were going to take the law into their own hands and um, uh, give me a bit of a flogging. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part three of the story of Henry Keogh, the South Australian man who spent over 20 years in prison for what police say was the murder of his fiancée, Anna Jane Cheney. It's a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. Henry is in court for the fight of his life. So far, the prosecution has trotted out a few witnesses including two women who would claim to have been having relationships with Henry around the same time that he was supposedly dating Anna Jane. The prosecution seemingly trying to paint Henry as a playboy who was certainly not in love with his fiancée. Not only this, but of course they wheeled out the South Australian chief forensic pathologist who we now know by the name of Dr Colin Manock, a man who was unqualified for the job. In fact, just prior to this trial, an inquest had been done into Dr. Manock's findings in the deaths of three children, an inquiry that would show that South Australia's man in charge was completely incompetent. However, this report would not be released until after Henry's conviction. What was the defence that your team put together in, as in experts? and? Well, basically, we had an ethicist, uh, a couple of um, other for forensic pathologists from interstate who actually were qualified and uh, had better credentials than him. But, I mean, this guy had been in operation in Adelaide for so long that he was basically um, the police or the DPP's uh, go-to guy. If they needed a, a certain um, victim to have died within a certain time frame, sure enough, he could come up with that. 
is Dr Robert Moles to tell us more about what the prosecution was claiming had happened, of course, with the so-called evidence from Dr Colin Manock. So Mr Keogh's on trial for murder of his fiancée by drowning her in the domestic bath at their home. It's alleged that he'd uh, um, engaged in this activity because he was due to get married in about six weeks' time and he'd had cold feet, second thoughts, and decided that he didn't really want to get married. And so the prosecution case was that he decided, instead of just saying, I'm off, to drown her in the bath. Part of the case was that um, it was claimed that he wanted to recover the money under the insurance policies. There were five insurance policies on her life, which amounted to uh, over a million dollars. Um, and it was said that he was after the money. Um, and there was a clear explanation as to why he had, or why they had the policies. Um, it really didn't make very much sense in, in that connection. Henry Keogh at the time had a very good job. He was earning around 100000 a year. So this is in 1994, Yeah, a lot of money back then. He was earning around 100000 a year and expected to receive around $50,000 in bonuses on top of that. So at that time, he was, you'd say, well, compared to other people, he's doing very nicely. He's a senior bank executive. He'd worked for the Bank of South Australia as an executive, and he'd just moved into financial planning with a firm of stockbrokers. So the allegation is that he's now murdered his fiancée by drowning her in the bath. The key evidence for this started on the night the incident had occurred. The police didn't have any suspicions that the murder had occurred. They just thought it was an unfortunate accident. It said, and off they went. It was only during the course of the weekend. The incident occurred on a Friday evening. So we're now round to the mid-Sunday afternoon and Dr Manick has come in to do the autopsies. If it were thought to be a suspicious death, he would have been called in straight away to do it. But this wasn't a suspicious death. And so we have a delay of a day or two. During the course of working um, in the afternoon, he had four or five autopsies to do, of which this was one. And during the course of the afternoon, it appears that uh, Machini's father had phoned the Forensic Science Centre. He was a haematologist specialising in pathology of blood, and that's why he would have known the phone number to ring at the mortuary, and he would have known Dr Manor. The police officer who's assisting at the uh, autopsy has written in the coronial running sheet, suspicions raised about Mr Keogh, rather strong fellow, I think there might be something going on here sort of thing. It's actually the sort of information that you don't want being delivered in the course of an autopsy. The reason for that is we call that a sort of contamination of the expert. The expert should be simply looking at what the observations are, what scientific inferences can be drawn, um, and really shouldn't be involved in what the police investigatory hypotheses are. We've actually spoken on this topic before, as in fact plenty of research has been conducted into this phenomena. In fact, in an episode with Dr. Carl Scher, an expert in false confessions, he spoke of how this evidence can, in fact, change forensic science results. And probably what's most unbelievable to people is that uh, confessions can change forensic science. Um, they can change um, pattern recognition experts, so fingerprint analysts, determinations of whether two fingerprints matched. Um, and there's even uh, some research out there showing that it can change the interpretation of DNA evidence. Uh, in one study, everyone who was told, all the examiners in the case, who knew that a confession had been attained and, and was associated with the case, all said that the, the DNA could not exclude the, the suspect. But they sent it out to 17 independent, I think they were FBI analysts, 
And um, only one said it couldn't exclude. I think three said inconclusive, but the other 13 said, no, it's not a match. This clearly is, is not a match. And they weren't provided with the confession evidence. Now, of course, there was no confession in this case, but when you have someone like Dr. Manock being informed at the autopsy of certain suspicions potentially surrounding the victim's partner in the case, well, it's not going to take much to sway his findings. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As it transpires, at the end of the day, it was established that there was, in fact, no evidence of bruising at all. Um, the evidence that was given at the trial, the evidence that was given at the trial, one, one piece was a black and white photographs of a pair of legs. Now, normally, when you're dealing with photographs of autopsies, you have a full body photograph, and then you have photographs of the sections of the body. So you can relate the photographs of the section to the whole body, so you can see, well, actually, I can see who we're dealing with, yeah. and so on. All we had was a photograph of a pair of legs that appeared to be female legs. That's all. Could have been anybody. So we have a black and white photo of a pair of legs that the jury are told are, of course, those of Anna Jane Cheney. And on this photo, there are supposedly what appear to be bruises. However, prior to the jury being shown the photo, the prosecutor would hand the picture to Dr Manock and ask him if he's able to see a mark on the inside of the left leg which he would deem to be bruising, to which Dr Manock replies, yes. The prosecutor then hands Dr Manock a red pen and asks him to please circle that bruising. This photograph is then subsequently handed to the jury. This, Dr Moles says, is a classic example of something in psychology called priming. Um, I was at a conference a while back, and uh, an expert psychologist turns up and says, I'm an expert in um, police covert um, recordings um, and how to interpret them and identify what has been said. She said, I'm now going to play you recording. It's recovered as part of a drug operation. And I want you to listen very carefully when he says that he got the drug money. Okay? And then she plays it. And this man, 
30 or 40 people there, maybe 50 people there. And then she said after, now did you see where he said, have you got the drug money? And we all said, yes, we could. But then she said, you've actually been mistaken. It's not in the recording at all. And we were just gobsmacked. We said, well, of course it is, we heard it. I mean, and we all agreed with each other, but we'd heard it. And she said, it's not there. She played it again, and we were suspicious. Oh, is that the same one you played last time? But it wasn't there. And she said, it's because I told you what to expect, that you have interpreted it in accordance with the expectation that I gave you. She said, in psychology, we call that priming. And so that's what happens here. If you take that photograph from the Keogh case, you've had an expert sitting in the box, drawn a circle around it. The prosecutor's now authoritatively giving it to the jury and says, can you see that the area inside that mark is different from the area outside it? And they all would say, yes, of course it is. Absolutely. This wouldn't be the only issue that would be found to do with the so-called bruising. As Dr Moles is later shown the tissue slides which Dr Manock would say was further evidence to bruising which had been caused on or around the time of death. The only other evidence that um, what we call the tissue slides. And so at autopsy you take a sample of a particular tissue um, and then you put it into a formalin um, and it then gets hardened. And then you take the tissue and you put it onto a tiny little thing. It's a bit like a bacon slice, so it will take off very, very thin slices of the tissue. And then you stain it, depending on what you're looking for. Dr. Manock had a number of slides, about half a dozen, which he said he'd taken from various areas which he thought to be bruising. And one of them came from a bruise on the inside of the left leg. I remember going to the Forensic Science Centre with Professor Tony Thomas, the person who had done the inquiry for the coroner into the baby deaths and whilst we were there he said to me Bob come and have a look at this and he had a microscope on the desk and he says now can you see the slide there I said I can see the slide and he said can you see what's on it I said there's nothing on it well he said that's the problem isn't it and I said well if it does show bruising what would you expect to see he said I'd expect to see the little red dots which are the red cells which have escaped from the blood vessels into the surrounding tissue which then begin to get discovered and form what we call bruising. I said, but there aren't any red dots there at all. Well, he says, that's the point, isn't it? You can't possibly see this as a slide of bruising, can you? Much like many of the American cases that we have covered, the media would play a big part in this story. Henry was all over the nightly news, in the papers and on the radio. You speak about the media. I mean, I wasn't around in Australia when, when this was all obviously going through um, its processes, so I'm assuming it was highly publicised in, in papers yeah. and TV. <clears throat> Only a lot. And, and that's my biggest issue. Again, well, I have very, I have so many issues with the jury system. I, I find the whole thing ridiculous. But again, you know, with a number of the cases I talk about with the US, you know, the judge will always say now, you know, don't don't go away and don't don't you be watching the news and don't read papers and all that sort of stuff. You know, you can't, you've got to stay away from all of that. Um, obviously, in the in the 90s when this happened, you didn't have the added thing we do now of social media and, and, and mm-hmm. Google, but still we had the news and, and you know, and, and you can't tell me that someone who's on a jury uh, in a murder trial is going to walk down the street, see a newspaper with your face on it and not read it or be at home yeah. watching the news and go, your story comes on, go, oh, I better turn that off. Of course they're not. Yeah. They're going to sit there and well, watch it. I mean, um, there was at least five or six weeks between Anna's death and, and my arrest where you had growing speculation or suspicion mounting either in the community or certainly in the papers. And there was 
I think it was a few of the later stories that um, basically turned my thinking around when um, uh, my friends kept saying, oh, you've got to get a lawyer, you know, this isn't, this is not looking good. But, you know, when I came, I'd come back from court each day and I would have a, end up having a physical reaction to, um, you, know, you know, that sort of musical intro that you've got with the news services um, because it would have the latest um, sort of like report from what, what happened in, in the court case. And, you know, there was just no respite. You know, it was just every day, every day. Um, and what was reported in the paper was never anything that sort of was good for the defence. It was always something that was sort of either sensational or... Um, Whatever sells papers, basically. Yeah, yeah. And even though it might only be from, uh, you know, what an antagonistic witness may have said, um, it was couched in terms that made it look like gospel. And, of course, when you've got that again, happening again and again and again, it just reinforces the idea that the justice system never gets it wrong. You know? They don't arrest innocent people. They don't convict innocent people. People don't lie um, in court. Well, police don't lie. Well, yes, they do. The the jury obviously eventually goes out to, to deliberate on this first trial. How long were they out for discussing this? <laughs> Must have been over 12 hours because I know that they um, were – taken to a hotel or a motel and sequestered there um, for the night mm -hmm. and came back sometime the next day. Um, but the second jury were only out for, I think, you know, five or six hours. <clears throat> With that, that first one, when they, they're coming back to, to bring their decision, obviously you don't know. I, I'm assuming you don't know that it's a hung <clears throat> jury until such time as they, they get up and say we couldn't come to a decision? No, that's right. I mean, the stress of that alone must just be just in absolute intense. I uh, I remember being in the holding cells in the Supreme Court when the jury had been uh, sort of let out for their deliberations, and um, the sheriff down there came out and said, "So, uh, what would you like to eat? You can have whatever you want." The last thing so you would, would not be hungry. Like food, oh God, no! It felt like the you know the condemned meal. The anxious wait continues until eventually word comes back the jury have made their decision. Again, the stress that you would be under in this situation would be immense. A feeling of complete and utter helplessness. Your fate is in the hands of 12 complete strangers. 12 people you've never met before. They've been sitting in a room talking about you and this crime deliberating on if they believe you to be a killer or not. You're thinking back over the evidence that was presented, the lies you know were told. Did the jury believe them? Were they listening to everything properly? Was there something I could have said that I didn't? If these people say guilty, my life is over. I just can't imagine how I would cope with this. The stress, anger and emotions would be unbelievable. Nonetheless, you have no choice in the matter. All you can do is what you're told, and that's stand up, stay quiet, and await the result. There's three options that you're waiting on. Guilty, innocent, or a hung jury. A hung jury, as most would know, is a jury that could not come to a unanimous decision as to someone's guilt or innocence. It, of course, does not mean you're free to go. It just means that you will have to go through all of this again. And that's exactly what happened to Henry in his first trial. 
So they come back and they they obviously get they get that verdict of a hung jury, which is it's not great, but it's 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 got to be somewhat positive that these people couldn't come to a decision. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I took some 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 solace in that, and yeah. I thought, well, it, it's not over, but it's a glimmer of hope. And I thought, well, that's better than the um, than one of the other alternatives. So you know, you learn to take whatever whatever's on offer and uh, make the best of it, because otherwise you're just going to be crushed. What does your legal team say to you after after that comes that decision comes oh, through? This was a scary scary moment for me before um, the jury came back because just before they did, I remember the barrister there and um, the solicitor were telling me that they could come back guilty, acquitted, or couldn't uh, reach a decision. He said the barrister said they only need ten to find you guilty. I said no, it's got to be unanimous. He said, oh no, I don't think so. And I said, I th- I'm pretty sure it is. He said, oh, well, we'll, we'll go away and check that. And I'm thinking, Sorry, that's, what, that's the most simple part of the whole thing, and they, they didn't even know, know how many. Dear me. But anyway, um, then when they did come back, said, that, okay, well, shit, we've got a, um, a hung jury here. That means we've got to uh, go through all this again. Um, if, um, you know, well, if you want to think about um, changing counsel, um, you know, I'll understand. And I'm thinking, why would I want? To, why would I want to change counsel now? I mean, you know the case with all the adverse publicity and everything else. Who else am I going to find to defend someone who's been accused of killing a lawyer? You know, I thought in Adelaide, I, I'm going to be pushing shit uphill to to find someone that's going to fit that bill, and to start again, um, more money, um, more time. Yeah. Um, because they're going to have to get up to speed, and if if they're not prepared to get up to speed, well, then there goes um, my chances down the chute, doesn't it? He said something really encouraging then. He said, "Well, going back and doing an appeal is like a dog returning to its vomit." And I'm thinking, oh, oh dear me! And I thought, what do you do? Henry would in fact get a slight glimmer of hope when he was in fact granted some bail time and was allowed to remain at home while they awaited a new trial. Then the idea was floated that uh, they'd apply for home detention bail because they didn't know how long uh, it'd be before the next trial was was uh, run. It went. Uh, it was only four months or something uh, later, and I didn't think that was a long enough um, break in between all that um, all that coverage. I was going to say the media cycle hasn't even really had a <clears> chance exactly. to get. Exactly, yeah. because I mean, by then the potential um, jury pool would have been well and truly uh, contaminated. You know, I can tell you, Jack, that you know, I'm with you on um, the jury system. I would never, ever have a jury for something that was complicated yeah. or serious or took a long time to um, get out because um, you will lose them. Um, and for all the reasons we discussed earlier, never, ever. Well, I mean, the first thing that happens when, for most people when you get that letter through the mail, I've had it twice saying you've been summoned for jury duties, you go, oh, shit. Because mm. you don't want to do it because you know it's out. It's taking time out of your life. It's it's terribly paid. You do get some money. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and as you said, you've got 12 people there who, you know, yeah. if you've got people, I've, I've said this before, you know, you've got 12 people there. If you've got four or five people who are say saying innocent and they're like, no, this guy's innocent, if they're not strong-willed enough, they'll eventually just go. Oh, yeah, whatever, fine. I, I, yeah, I, I, we've yeah. been here long enough. Yeah, let's we've go. been. Let's just, and and I've heard that before from yep. jurors saying, you know, it got to a point where we're like, you know, we have to come to a decision, so we just went guilty. 
It's like, yeah. what do you mean you just went guilty? Yeah. Like, this is someone's life. Now, I did a little more research into being a juror the other day after someone argued the fact with me that as jurors, you get paid for being there. So it's not as much of an imposition as I'm making it out to be. So across Australia, the amount paid to jury members varies from state to state. Now, in Queensland, when you're first summoned to court, you're likely to go through a jury selection process to start with. For this, you will be paid in Queensland $43.75 for the day. Now, if you're selected as a jury, your pay will increase to $130.80 for the day. So in Queensland, as a juror, you still failed to hit the Australian minimum wage. In New South Wales, you're paid $106 a day. Things do look up after two weeks, however, when your pay will increase to $247.40. However, that is only if you're employed. If you're a carer, stay-at-home parent or unemployed, I'm afraid you'll be staying below minimum wage at $106. In Victoria, for the first six days of service, you'll get a whopping $40 per day. After that, you'll be given $80 a day for the remainder of the trial. However, in Victoria, if you're employed with predictable hours, then it is actually placed back on your employer to pay the difference of what you would have been expected to earn during this time. In South Australia, where Henry's story is set, you're paid an astonishing $20 a day, no matter how long the trial lasts. However, if you can prove that you have lost income, you can claim up to a maximum of $144 per day on top of your $20. WA is exactly the same as South Australia, $20 a day. However, their reimbursement is far greater and you can claim up to $1,000 a day. So not bad in WA. In Australia's capital, the ACT, it's 112 for the first four days. From day five to 10, it's 130. And after that, it's $150 a day. In the Northern Territory, $60 a day and $121 after 10 days with the possibility of up to an extra $30 a day if you can prove lost income. The best state, in fact, in Australia to be a juror is in Tasmania, who have paid a decent $257 a day as long as you can prove lost income. Oh, and as just a quick side note, all money earned as a juror is also taxable. So please don't forget to claim it come tax time so the government can take some of that money back. Eventually, Henry goes through his second trial with, of course, all the same witnesses as before, including Dr. Manock's testimony. And the jury heads off for deliberation. The second jury comes back after you know, six hours. I mean, what we because obviously the first one had taken double that really. So this one's come back quicker. So did you see that as a positive or, or a negative, or you had no idea? I wasn't sure because I'd heard so many you know, contrary opinions on that. But when they filed in, I just had this sinking feeling because um, none of them would look at me. Oh dear! And uh, I thought I'm fucked. But interestingly, um, when the foreman got up and said that, there was a pause in the court. I even heard the judge gasp and the bar table where um, all the lawyers were. I think the prosecution were braced for a not guilty. They were stunned. Then sort of um, there's all sorts of noises erupting from the um, from the gallery. And um, <clears throat> I just couldn't look at her. My family were there. <clears throat> I didn't even have to ask you what was going through your head at that point because uh, devastation, utter devastation, I'm sure. Probably more for um, my family who I knew were in the uh, in the gallery. Yeah. 
because uh, by then you know, I would I was sort of um, braced for it, hopeful but braced um, for for you know, the bad news, and I was still naively hanging on to um, faith in the system, away from the juries, and relying on um, you know, experienced trained judges, if not here at the High Court. At that stage, I hadn't lost faith. Henry has obviously been found guilty, but it would be a few weeks before he would be officially sentenced. He says while in the remand centre, another prisoner gives him some news that floors him. I was in the remand centre. It was um, probably a week or so away from when I was actually um, sentenced. And I think it was about three or four weeks later that the sentence was actually handed down. And I was there just talking to um, another guy. And he said, not good news, Henry. I said, why? We're around town amongst all the lawyers, and my lawyer told me um, that um, you're up for a big whack. I said, well, what? And he said, they're talking about 35, 40 years. My heart sank then, I can tell you. Um, <clears throat> and, and bizarre as it might sound, um, when I actually got life with a non-parole period of um, only 25. You relieved. That seemed like a bonus in comparison to uh, so 30 or 35. The sentence is handed down, and although long, better than what Henry was expecting. Plus at this stage, he still had hope that he would be able to get out on appeal once a judge got the chance to review this case. However, in the meantime, it was off to prison. From there, I was shifted fairly quickly um, to, um, uh, to Yattler. Yatla Prison is a high-security men's prison located in the northeastern part of northern Adelaide. It was built back in 1854 and has been in the news of late for its recent $180 million redevelopment, as well as violence. Tonight, I can reveal Fipers was the victim of a frenzied stabbing attack here at Yatla on Friday night, shanked by another prisoner with a makeshift knife. Fipers was treated in the prison health centre. His injuries are not considered life-threatening. And... In fact, a murder. Several top-level investigations are underway tonight into how a bashing murder could happen behind the bars of the state's highest security prison. A 33-year-old is in custody, accused of killing his cellmate at Yatla. And, and what's Yatla like? It was surprisingly the same but different. I'd been, you know, I was mortified at the thought of going into, you know, the jail system proper um, because of... You know, what I had seen and read um, over my over my years, and you know, guys would say, "Oh, look, you're you're like it when you get up there. You can you can buy your own kettle, you can have your own shoes, and all that sort of stuff, and sand shoes." And I think, what? Who cares about that crap? You know, I just want my life back. Yeah. And you know, I was thinking, well, here I'm, I'm going to be going from what I was sort of used to to some, to another unknown, which. I imagined as being sort of dangerous and brutal and all that sort of stuff. Lo and behold, all did was catch up with a whole heap of people who I'd seen yeah, right. from the remand centre. So it wasn't as dreadful as I'd imagined. Almost um, a relief, I'd imagine, when you walk in and see faces that you recognise. Yeah, yeah. Although, because people had 
made up their minds about my case or whatever. And there was quite a few people who I didn't know they'd been there for quite some time. And they were going to take the law into their own hands and um, uh, give me a bit of a flogging. I uh, was led into my cell in E division, which was a two out. And um, the guy I was sold up with had uh, been out on um, you know, exercise, playing soccer or something. Uh, he came in, I said, oh, good day, mate. No answer. I said, I said hi. No answer. Um, turned around and said, I've been told I've got to give you a, a kicking. I mean, he was a big boy. And um, he said, they didn't like what, you've, what you're in here for. I said, well, you can do that if you want, but it doesn't change one thing. What's that? And I said, I didn't do it, and I'm going to be fighting this on appeal. So do your worst. And he wasn't expecting that. I mean, I was, what, 40 by then, probably 40, 41, probably half his size and weight. He started asking me questions about the case and all that sort of stuff. And we just hit it off. We played cards and we played chess and we talked for most of the night. And um, when that finished, he said, don't worry about tomorrow. I'll get it sorted for you. So, a lucky escape for Henry, although it wouldn't be his last in prison. He said, um, stay down this end of the, uh, the wing. Don't go down there. You have one minute remaining. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.